Hi, I'm Demetrius Spinrad. And I'm Isaac Meyer. And this is the Criminal Records Podcast, a podcast about some of history's weirdest crime cases. So this week we have a, a real doozy for you guys. This is a case that I've wanted to talk about for a long time. Uh, if you don't know, so I've been working on a project called the History of Japan Podcast for a very long time. Uh, this was a case I wanted to talk about in the podcast, but once we decided we were going to do criminal records, I figured it's a good one to save uh, because it is ooh, quite something. This is the story of Abe Sada. So two things to note before we get into it. First, in this podcast, the pedantic hill that I choose to die on is that we will use East Asian name order. So the last name comes first, Abe. And the personal name comes second, Sada in this case. Sometimes you also see it rendered as Sadako. Uh, the second thing to note, just a heads up, this episode does include some peripheral mention of sexual assault, though not much detail, and some somewhat graphic depiction of, to use the technical term, some very freaky business in the sack. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, listener discretion is definitely advised in this one. Yeah, heads up, guys. Um, so, let's get into it. So, Abe Sada is born in what we'd call an upper-middle-class family in Tokyo, uh, the capital of Japan, in a neighborhood called Kanda. So, Kanda is part of Tokyo's Shitamachi, uh, and she's born in 1905, by the way, uh, and this neighborhood at the time has a reputation as being, you know, lower, a lower-class neighborhood, tends to be full of blue-collar types, it's a businessy neighborhood, a lot of merchant families... Uh, you know, not exactly the upper crust, but still, you know, it's blue collar. It's not like really like urban blighty or anything like that. She's from uh, an interesting family. Her father, Shigeyoshi, uh, was actually adopted by marriage, which is a practice you see all over East Asia where a family that doesn't have a male heir but does have a daughter will arrange for her to be married and then they'll adopt her husband as their son and heir. Um... And so he becomes the heir of a childless family of tatami mat makers. Tatami mats are what traditionally line the floor of a Japanese house. Uh, by all accounts, he is not a great father. Uh, for example, he punished Sada's sister, Teruko, uh, who was promiscuous. She was uh, all about town, shall we say, by sending her to a brothel for a period, which you can imagine that's a real A-plus parenting right there. Um, he does eventually pull her back out of the brothel, which is, you know, sending her there and pulling her out is his legal right, uh, in Japanese law at the time. And she is able to eventually get married without the, uh, experience being a serious blemish on her prospects. But, yeah, not the best parenting. Uh, her brother, Shintaro, also has a troubled childhood. He is also a womanizer. I guess it, uh, runs in the family. Uh, and he eventually steals a bunch of money from the family and runs away. So when we get to Sada's childhood, uh, it was pretty difficult. She described being the victim of a sexual assault by one of her friends as a teenager. Uh, and later on, actually, that experience, that very first uh, experience grounded in that moment of assault, is going to be used basically to explain some of her, uh, her behavior later, the crime she's accused of. And uh, she did commit, she admitted she committed it. Uh, the state is going to say that this assault basically made her into a deviant uh, for the rest of her life. So there's some really, uh, really nice stuff there. Um, so eventually, this daughter too, uh, Sada too, is sold by her family to a geisha house. We don't really know why. 
Uh, it could have been punishment, just like happened with her older sister, Teruko. Uh, it could have been because the family needed money. Keep in mind that her brother did steal a bunch from the family. It could be that she volunteered to go. I mean, then as now, the idea of being a geisha is kind of glamorous. Uh, maybe she thought it would have been cool. Uh, at her trial later, her sister Teruko did testify that Sada wanted to go. However, Sada would say it was a punishment. We don't know who's telling the truth there. So we have to set the scene here. Prostitution was actually legal in Japan at this point. It wasn't actually outlawed until the 1950s. So the prostitution system was actually very carefully regulated by the government. Women who were prostitutes were usually indentured. They would receive a cash advance. Either they would keep it themselves or, more often, their parents would get it. And then during their time in a brothel or a geisha house, they would be basically be working to pay it back. Uh, this means that there was no leaving once you entered. Uh, that would be running out on the contract that you entered into when you or your family received that cash advance. So geisha were regulated in the same way. Uh, now, we're getting into some tricky hair-splitting here, a purist would probably insist that geisha are not prostitutes. Uh, they did receive other forms of artistic training, but sleeping with your clients was expected. So if you were really good at art, you might not be sleeping with your clients as often, but this is still definitely sex work. Mm. So Sada starts off as a geisha it turns out she's not really great at the artistic side of it. She spends most of her time on the sex work. She reportedly contracts syphilis as a result of that work, uh, which is a pretty nasty disease. Do you know uh, what the state of potentially curing syphilis was at the time? So I know that it's treatable with antibiotics, but to the best of my knowledge, that's not particularly widespread. And at the time, it uh, would have been pretty uh, uncommon for a woman like her to have access to good medical care that antibiotics would be able to uh, you know, give her which would access, have access to them and the best antibiotics really aren't developed till the 50s so uh, I don't I can't imagine you know it's again this is reported that she had syphilis but if she did uh, I can't imagine it was particularly easy to live with so Sada leaves the geisha world to become a prostitute and a barmaid and she moves to the more working-class city of Osaka. She starts working as an unlicensed prostitute to get around the government regulations. She also starts working as a mistress to a series of wealthy men. And one of these men is a guy named Kasahara Kinnosuke, who is a lobbyist for the Seiyukai Party, the majority party in government, uh, in 1934. And Kasahara, uh, it turns out to be a pretty good connection for her, both in terms of, you know making money. She's a working girl, after all. And uh, he bails her out of prison after one of her arrests for unlicensed prostitution. Eventually, he takes her as a full-time concubine. Basically, she signed an exclusive contract to be his sexual partner. Uh, but it doesn't work out super well. Eventually, she gets bored with him. Uh, I guess he was pretty vanilla, which, as we'll discover, she was not. And so she moves to the city of Nagoya to avoid him coming after her for breach of contract. Because remember... This is all contractual relationship. You're basically paid money to either work in a brothel and then you have to pay back that advance, or the same deal, but one person is buying your contract. So she actually starts using a pseudonym to 
keep out of her contract. Uh, her She goes by Tanaka Kayo for a while. So in Nagoya, she attempts to leave the sex industry again by becoming a waitress. But she ends up falling back into it, both because the pay was better and because she does genuinely seem to enjoy being a sex worker. She ends up with a few men, most notably a professor and member of the city council named Omiya Goro. Do you want to take over and explain what was going on with the politics during this period? Absolutely. So first, a little bit about Omiya. He's an aspiring politician who does seem to genuinely care about her. Uh, she would later say that he asked about her personal life. He offers to help her live more comfortably. And later, she would say that she genuinely loved him. Uh, that, you know, this care really helped her fall for him. But she does continue to sleep with other men, uh, including some of her former uh, clientele, shall we say. Uh, but she does seem to also have some genuine affection for this guy. Now, Goro is also quite ambitious. He wants to run for higher office. He doesn't want to be a city councilor. He wants to join the Diet. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that he's trying to do the Whole30 or whatever. The Diet is the Japanese National Parliament, and he wants to run for national office. Um, at this time, the Diet is losing its influence. This is the period where Japan is trending in a militaristic direction. Military government has started to take over the country. But... It's still a high-prestige job. I mean, even if you don't actually make any decisions, you get to go around, you know, sitting in Parliament, seeing the Emperor, hearing him give speeches. You get to, you know, wave the flag and, uh, you know, have this very high-prestige role. So, for an ambitious man like Omiya, uh, it makes sense that he would go for it. So, eventually, Omiya convinces her to leave the trade again. So, with his help, she gets a job at a fancy restaurant called the Yoshidaya in Tokyo. This is owned by a man named Ishida Kichizo, a career restaurateur, and his wife. So, apparently, Omiya was a bit of a cold fish in the sack. Uh, he wasn't a great lay, and he wanted to take a break from their sexual relationship to focus on work. At the same time, Ishida started hitting on her, and, uh, as Isaac has put it in the script, getting up in her space. Yeah, he grabbed her butt a whole bunch, basically. Yeah, great working environment there. So, she actually later recalled being glad that he was attracted to her, and excited because he was more forward than the comparatively demure Omiya. So, beginning in April, the two of them have sex for the first time. He calls her back into a room of the restaurant, the two drink together, and they have sex. So, this actually, even though it was technically an affair, appears to have been tacitly acknowledged by Mrs. Ishida, who was the one who told Abe that a customer wanted her services in the private room? It appears that the Ishida marriage was more of a business relationship than a loving couple that expected complete monogamy from yeah. each other. Or they were just into some really crazy stuff, which, as we'll see, is not entirely beyond the realm of reason. <laughs> so the two enter into a serious sexual relationship. They are so into each other that at one point they rent a love hotel expecting to be there only for one night, and they stay in there for four days, which is a lot of sex. Yeah, damn. So they're more and more into each other. Ishida begins opening up to Abe, telling her things that he hasn't told his wife, like how badly in debt the restaurant is. So Abe becomes more and more upset as their relationship develops that her lover is returning to his wife every night. 
And their relationship, even as it's taking this kind of emotional turn where she's feeling more invested and more hurt that it can't ever really go beyond where it is, uh, it starts to get pretty intense in bed. Uh, in particular, the two of them start making use of a, a knife in bed. Uh, she apparently gets a bit of a thrill with threatening him with it. Uh, at one point, she puts it at the base of his penis and says uh, she'll make sure that he is never with another woman, and apparently he is into it. So yeah, that's a thing that definitely happened, and I just said it out loud. Life is a rich tapestry, so... Indeed it is. Uh, the two of them also begin experimenting, by the way, with autoerotic asphyxiation, which, if you don't know what that is, uh, feel free to go look it up. Just pause the podcast, uh, take a look at Wikipedia, R.I.P. David Carradine, uh, real loss for the uh, film industry. So, yeah, on May 18th, uh, 1936, things start between the two of them, as they often do. Uh, the two are in bed, getting their business on, and very early in the morning... She puts her obi, the sash that holds a uh, kimono together, around his neck, and they start uh, doing as they do. But she gets a little bit too into it, and as a result, Ishida Kichizo is strangled to death. Who among us hasn't gotten carried away and strangled a few lovers? Yeah, you know, it's just a really a a moment, a rite of passage in life. You know, you get your driver's license, you buy your first car, you go to college, and you strangle your first restaurateur to death in a love hotel. So, she lies with him after she realizes what has happened for a few hours, uh, and then she pulls her knife out. Uh, And what might she be doing with the knife, you might ask? Well, she would like to take a souvenir of her time with her dearly departed lover, and that is when she chops off his penis and stuffs it into the uh, sleeves of her kimonos. They're basically pockets in the sleeves of a kimono. Uh, So she takes her, uh, her souvenir with her, she also uses the knife to carve a phrase, Sada and Kichi, Kichizo, are alone, uh, into his thigh, and she carves her first name into his arm, so not really concerned about hiding who was involved in all of this, and then leaves the hotel around 8 a.m., leaving the body inside to be found a few hours later by the hotel staff. So she meets up with Omiyagoro a few hours later, it's probably the first thing she does according to her account, and apologizes to him, and uh, he apparently thought that she was apologizing for having an affair, you know, doesn't think it's a particularly big deal. After all, again, he's a bit of a cold fish, he's busy with his politics, you know, he's not too bothered by the idea that she would sleep with someone else. Uh, It's only later, when the murder part of all of this comes out, and also the uh, dick-chopping part of it comes out, that Goro's association with her, when it becomes public, uh he realizes what she was really apologizing for. It ruins those high-flying political ambitions. He's kicked out of the Sayukai party shortlist for running for office. We don't really know for sure what happens to him later. I did a lot of digging to try and find him, and I did find one mention of his name in 1950, after the end of World War II. A report by the U.S. Far Eastern Commission does mention one Omiya Goro as going to the United States to study economics, So presumably he was a professor before, maybe he went back into academia, but we're not 100% sure. Now Abe, meanwhile, uh, after meeting with Omiya, goes on the lam. Uh, She starts, you know, running away to try and, uh, you know, escape justice, and becomes the uh, the object of a national panic very briefly. When this story hits the paper, here is this woman, a career uh, lady of negotiable affection, 
who has strangled her lover to death in a crime of passion and then chopped his penis off and took it with her, uh, you can imagine that moves some newspapers. It is quite a sensation. And she becomes an object of intense public fear and interest. Uh, at one point, there's actually a stampede in Shinjuku, a part of sort of central Tokyo, when someone thinks they see her in a crowd, and when, you know, it gets out, oh, look, it's Sada Abe, everyone starts running away. Uh, it's, I think, kind of darkly funny. Um, in a sort of play on the politics of the time, this murder starts being referred to in the press as the 518 incident, uh, 518 being a shorthand for May 18th. Uh, this is a sort of play on something else that had happened in 1936, uh, the 226 incident, or February 26th incident. A little bit earlier in the year, uh, extremist members of the army had attempted a military coup against the government, which had been the subject of a lot of public speculation because the government then really worked to cover up what had happened. Um, and so this, this gets kind of uh, parodied, right? The 226 incident is the coup against Tokyo. The 518 incident is this killer loose on the streets of Tokyo, chopping the dicks off hapless men. Um, Abe is aware of all of this, but she tries to lay low. She heads to a hotel in Shinagawa, which is another part of Tokyo, and starts writing goodbye letters to her friends and family, and basically is planning, you know, a brief period uh, to get her affairs in order and then commit suicide. She does also say to the police later that she continued to uh, make use of the souvenir she took from the dearly departed uh, Ishida Kishizo. So, you know, that happened. Um, but yeah, she's planning to, uh, I guess, enjoy her last little bit on Earth and then commit suicide. But it doesn't really work out. The police are able to track her down when someone at the hotel recognizes her. And she is busted uh, two days after the murder on May 20th as police find her in Shinagawa. When they do arrest her, by all accounts, she's very cooperative. She doesn't try to flee or anything. She just says, yes, it's me. And meekly is put in handcuffs and taken away. So she starts explaining what she did pretty quickly. She doesn't attempt to cover up or hide her crime. Her explanation for why she killed him was... When I thought about my future with Ishida, I realized that he had a fine wife. No matter how much I loved him, I could expect to be together with him like this no more than about two weeks in every month. Because I had already bet my life on Ishida, and I had come to adore him so completely, I would not be able to stand the pain of this separation. So I decided that it would be best to throw everything away for the love that I had for Ishida at present, and to kill him and die myself. That's how I decided to kill him. It was a pity that although I was the person who loved him the most, I couldn't attend his funeral. That's why I cut off the part of the man that I love the most. And incidentally, uh, just so you know, so divorce is legal in Japan at this time. Uh, the laws of the Japanese Empire do allow for it. It requires the consent of both parties, but it can happen. However, it's pretty rare. There's still a lot of social stigma against it, and especially against getting divorced and remarried. Uh, and generally speaking, the divorce laws heavily favor men. Um, so it's a, it's a system that's still pretty stacked against women, um, even though hypothetically there, you, know, you could say, oh, why couldn't they just get a divorce? In reality, it's pretty impractical, given the considerations of the time. 
It's also worth noting that Ishida had a pretty good thing going with Yeah, I don't women. know that he really wanted, right? He's got, you know, his business arrangement with his wife, and he's got this uh, side business, which, you know, not really my thing, knives, but whatever works, I guess. Life is a rich tapestry. So, Sada is very cooperative in detention. She tells the police basically everything they want to know, probably some things they didn't necessarily want to know. Definitely she complains a bit. She complains a bit about the quality of the prison. Her cell, her cell neighbor also recalls her saying that she hoped that they would execute her. She, at this point, was pretty determined that she actually wanted to die. So she actually, one of her statements, which I will quote, is, If I hadn't thought I would receive the death penalty, I wouldn't have told everything in such detail at police headquarters. Because I have told everything, people will think I am a pervert. But if I hadn't told everything, people couldn't be expected to understand what Ishida and I did together. When I asked for a lawyer, it wasn't so that I might get off lightly. It was so that he could tell people I wasn't a pervert. And meanwhile, uh, she was interrogated by a bunch of officers in the Tokyo Police Department, one of whom was named Adachi Umezo, and he actually wrote down his experience of dealing with her. Uh, later on, um, and he said that she had, quote, a very straightforward manner. She answered questions without hesitation. She said, I'm sorry for all the trouble I've caused with great fervor, but it was possible to see that deep inside she was very satisfied that she had managed to take complete control of the man she loved. What really left an impression on me was when I asked her, why did you cut him? Immediately she became excited and her eyes sparkled in a strange way. At the time, people were saying that she had cut off Ishida's thing because it was larger than average. But in reality, Ishida's was just average. Uh, she later told me, Size doesn't make a man in bed. Technique and his desire to please me were what I liked about Ishida. So it's really hard to know what to make of all of this. I mean, she's talking about possessing a man, taking the part of uh, him that she loved the most. Uh, right, really being able to hang on and possess uh, Ishida in death in the way she couldn't have in life. Uh, you can see how all of this would be deeply scandalizing, but also kind of uh, titillating when it, the details started to hit the press. So the state's position in her prosecution was laid out in the summary brief of the evidentiary record given to judges. Quote, Although it is difficult to assert that her desire to control the victim sexually was pathological, the strength of that desire easily emerged from the strength of her sexual appetite. This was also clearly shown by her peace of mind following the murder. Furthermore, several facts make it hard to think that she was driven by a pathological lust to kill. She had an impulsive character and committed the murder impulsively. She was in a light state of intoxication and a heightened state of sexual excitement on the night of the crime and she did not commit the murder for the purpose of stimulating sexual pleasure or any other such perversion. With regard to her treatment of the body and her actions after the murder, it is impossible to understand them based solely on her enormous desire for sex. In other words, we think that she did this purely out of physical desire and not because she loved him, even though that doesn't quite fit, and she insists that love was the real reason she committed the murder. The state's assertion was that Abe's whole messed up life, combined with an innately degenerative and nymphomaniacal character, was what made her do it. 
this is, by modern standards, a pretty screwed up uh, pro way to prosecute a woman. Unfortunately, it does actually still happen around the world in various courts today. There's a lot of impugning of women's desires uh, that you will probably still see in courtrooms to this day. And absolutely, the infantilization of women is not really understanding the desires that are being impulsive. It kind of reminds me, honestly, of Bertrand when we talked about uh, Martin Guerre, right? That uh, Jean de Carras doesn't believe that she's capable of deceiving him, that she must have just been tricked. She, you know, she's just a woman. How could she know better than to be tricked by a smart man? Kind of uh, reminiscent of that dismissive attitude. Oh, absolutely. So the case starts on November 25th. There are massive crowds outside and inside the courthouse. Abe's defenders are led by Takeuchi Kentaro. They attempt to claim that she was temporarily insane. Abe herself actually undermines her own defense constantly by saying that she knew what she was doing. In public, meanwhile, there's this growth of something called sodomania, a public fascination with the trial. Now, one of the scholars who's written on this, a guy named William Johnston, he claims that it's sympathy, actually, driven mostly by women who are interested in the case. And they wish, according to him, that they could monopolize the men in their lives who, after all, can step out pretty freely. This is a time when men really don't suffer consequences for cheating on their wives, but women suffer plenty for cheating on their husbands. And so they wish they could control their men in the way that Abe Sada was able to control her man. I'm going to have some things to say in our wrap-up about the bias historians bring into their interpretations. Oh, I cannot wait. So, Abe pleads guilty. So most of the trial is just restatement of interrogation, plus presentation of the evidence. And this gets pretty lurid. The penis was entered as evidence. It was in a jar of formaldehyde. I desperately want a photo of the judge's faces as some straight-faced prosecutor has to pull out a jar with a preserved dick in it and just be like, you know, here's exhibit A. <laughs> it is technically evidence. Oh my God. God bless the court system. So three judges on the case rule that six years of imprisonment is appropriate. Others in the justice ministry wanted to kill her. The final line at the time, at the time of official sentencing was, quote, at the time of the crime, the defendant was suffering from a mental handicap which is to say, a condition of mental weakness. In other words, she got off light because they decided that she was mentally impaired and committed a crime of passion. And that's how Abe Sada, who you'll remember, originally thought and kind of wanted that she was going to, uh, to be executed, she ended up getting six years in prison. So after her release in the middle of World War II in 1942, she assumed an alias and lives fairly anonymously. Meanwhile, the police files of her case, which are in the public record, uh, become a bestseller. They're actually bundled and published, and they become enormously popular as part of this whole sodomania. Now, so, oh, please. So after the war, she became pretty famous. Mountains of erotic stories were written about her life. She actually became kind of a sex symbol of a woman who was in touch with her own sexuality. So there were novels published like erotic confessions of Abe Sada and memoirs of Abe Sada. Some were stressing the titillating aspects, the freaky sex, but others were really making the case that Abe loved Ishida. 
And she herself actually does get into this a little bit. She starts uh, embracing the stage and has a one-act show that, tragically, no one has ever recorded, to the best of my knowledge, even though I am sure it is a fascinating viewing experience. She called it Showa Ichidai Ona, or A Woman of, Sho- a Woman of Showa. Uh, Showa is the name for this era of Japanese history. Traditionally, each period of an emperor's reign is uh, associated with a certain era. The reign of Emperor Hirohito is the Showa era. So that's pretty interesting that she is portraying herself as the sort of voice of a generation there. Yeah, uh, it definitely says a certain something about how she viewed this after the fact. Um, and it does take off. I mean, the show is popular. She sits for some interviews that are pretty popular. But she does not really enjoy the spotlight. Eventually she grows tired of it and becomes more of a sort of reclusive type. So she takes a job at a pub in Tokyo, and she basically returns to working life. And it's because of that pub job that I actually first heard about this case and got interested in it, because that same pub was later uh, frequented by a guy named Donald Ritchie, who was a famous film historian, wrote a lot about Japanese film, and he used to go to that place all the time and met her a couple of times and talked about it. Uh, According to his recollections, she would come down the stairs uh, for work into the pub, and men all over the place would start shouting, hide the knives, or they'd start covering up their genitals. Uh, and apparently they thought it was hilarious, and she did not. Um, but uh, we don't actually know what happens to her in the end. She works this job at the pub, but in 1969, she vanishes. After she disappears, there's one more person who claims to have seen her, And it actually, uh, this came about because of the film that's made about her life, made by one of Japan's most interesting directors, a guy named Oshima Nagisa. Uh, He makes a movie called In the Realm of the Senses in 1976 about uh, Abe's relationship with Ishida. I've only seen clips of the movie. Uh, It is weird. I don't know how to characterize it other than weird. Well, you're uh, saying there were some weird Japanese movies made in the 1970s? Yeah, you know, I know that's very shocking to those of you with a background in Japanese film. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google a movie called Haosu, uh, and be prepared to go on a very weird journey. If you actually watch that movie, we should probably apologize to you. Yeah, don't actually watch don't, the movie. There are way better ways to spend your time. Um, so this movie, In the Realm of the Senses, Oshima wants uh, Abe to sign off on his portrayal, and goes through the trouble to track her down, and he says, uh, though this is not independently verified, that he does find her. Eventually he finds her in Kansai, in sort of uh, central western Japan, in a Buddhist nunnery. Apparently she had taken uh, the vows of a Buddhist nun, shaved her head, uh, and just devoted her life to praying for better karma, Uh, and met with him and greenlit the film. But we don't know. Again, that's just Oshima's story. We have no proof it actually happened. Uh, And after that point, she probably died at some point, but we don't actually know for sure. Again, she just disappears and vanishes from the mainstream record. So what can we learn about Japan at the time of this case? Because this is happening in a really, really interesting period of Japanese history, And it's a case that was pretty well recorded, um, both from her testimony and in the court of public opinion. So I think there are really three things we can focus on. And the first one um, really is a legacy of a part of the Japanese justice system that dates back to China, as we're going to see in later episodes. 
Uh, and this is the idea of the power of confession. So Abe confessed, right, very early on, did not attempt to hide what she had done. And it's a long-standing tradition of the East Asian justice system going back to the courts of the Chinese imperial dynasties 2,000 years ago that confession leads to leniency. If you confess, then you have proven that you have some regret for what you have done, and therefore you can be reintegrated back into society in the way that someone who is unrepentant and refuses to admit what they have done cannot be. So... So this is going to be really interesting to Westerners, because if you are an American especially, you're probably used to the idea that a confession allows the court system to go harder on you because they now have conclusive proof that you did it. So this is a case where uh, the court system that you as a, as a Westerner are familiar with is going to be very different than the court system that Abe was tried under. Absolutely. And it's a feature, again, of those early imperial systems, as we'll see, but also uh, even to this very day, both Japan and China have justice systems that encourage confession and where generally you can get off lighter if you confess to a crime uh, because of that assumption dating back to the time of Confucius that it means that you have shown more remorse for what you have done. So would you say that rates of confession are much higher? Oh, good lord, yes. Uh, fun fact, Japan has one of the highest conviction rates in the world. Uh, I believe it is over 99%. Uh, over 99% of the time, if you are accused of something, you will be convicted of it. And that is because there is so much pressure and such an incentive to confess to the crime. You are actually more likely to be convicted by the court system of Japan than you are by the court system of the People's Republic of China, which you might remember is a one-party dictatorship. So, so that's that's yeah. pretty interesting. That's pretty, and we'll explore that that uh, idea a bit more in later episodes. So the second thing, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this for uh, I think are what I think are going to be obvious reasons, is exploring this idea of male-female relations in Japan. Right, Johnston has this idea that Abe becomes a sympathetic figure because she is able to do the thing that women uh, throughout Japan wish they could do, control her man, uh, and, you know, take from him the thing that kind of gives him his power and claim it for herself. Um, and certainly it is remarkable that, you know, she positions herself as this voice of a generation of women, that she has this interest in her case from women all over Japan. Um, so that I can see where that contention is coming from, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So I think if you're an American, the most obvious comparison to uh, this case would be the case of Lorena Bobbitt, another dick-chopping incident. In that case, uh, the person, the, the husband who got his dick chopped off actually survived, and the penis was surgically reattached. It's a very strange and lurid case. But so we'll definitely be doing it, right? Oh, absolutely we're doing it. It's really fascinating. And Lorena actually becomes a sort of similar object of fascination, although in her case, the argument is more that she was being abused and her insanity defense rests more on the fact that she was attempting to get away from an abusive husband. So the sort of mass, almost hysteria over a case of a woman removing a man's penis is the same. But in that case, uh, a lot of feminist and sympathetic portrayals of her focus more on an act of desperation to survive. Um, 
But Sada Abe's case is a lot more complicated. She didn't need to continue having sex with this man to survive. Uh, but trying to argue that this was some sort of expression of... Uh, Political will of some kind? Or like yeah. A, it almost seems like it's being positioned as like a performance art piece. Like, uh, I put this together, I call it dicklessness. It's my statement on masculinity. <laughs> yeah, the personal is political, but not in that sense, really. So, actually, in our last episode, we talked a lot about uh, the interior lives of historical figures. I think this is a really interesting case because we actually have her basically telling the police everything about her interior life at the time, and then her own defense and the prosecution refusing to really allow her interpretation of what she did to stand in court. They make a, diff a very different argument. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say she's a sympathetic person. I wouldn't necessarily say that she, people should emulate this kind of behavior. But uh, thank you for me. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for endorsing that publicly. <laughs> yeah, some little things that make this relationship work. <laughs> yeah, just uh, just a, just so there's no suspicion lingering in the air among our listeners. Um, but she is a woman who got to talk a lot about her sex life and her desires in public during a very complicated period of Japanese history where a lot of women did not get to do that. And yeah. I think that's part of what makes her such an object of fascination. It is very interesting, for sure, that she is able to have this public discussion in a government-endorsed forum of what she enjoys about sex with men at a time when, you know, talking about birth control was still pretty taboo for Japanese feminists, when, you know, the sort of image of an ideal Japanese woman was the good wife and the wise mother who, you know, sits at home and supports her man and raises up her children to be loyal to the emperor... And here is this woman who gets to put forward a very different version of who she is and how she relates to men. Uh, it's also worth pointing out that from a very early age, her sexuality was really commodified in a way that we, we as modern Westerners have kind of a hard time understanding. Her, her sexuality was something that could be sold by her family for a contract. And so her going from that to having this very intense sexual relationship, uh, not contractually, but also with her employer, there's a lot of complicated stuff happening there. And uh, trying to put a modern Western idea of what sexual pleasure and sexual choice looks like onto a woman like this is probably missing a lot of what was going on in her head. Absolutely. I think the last thing to note about this case is just the way in which it ties into a shifting media landscape in Japan. Um, one of the things that historians of the lead up to World War II love to write about in Japan is the growing mass media market in terms of newspaper and some newfangled business that we'll never catch on called the radio. Is that what that is? I've, I've never heard of it before. I just <laughs> listen to podcasts. Um, and the way in which those technologies help grow support for the war effort. But here we see them doing something very different. They help get this woman's view of her own life and her own case out there and really make her into a commodity at the same time, right? She moves papers. This story is popular. It gets people to tune in. 
and makes a story uh, like that into a commodity in a way that would have been unusual in previous periods. So, yeah, it is true that about as long as the media has existed, it's been used to tell stories of lurid crimes. Um, Crime sells papers. Crime in the modern era gets clicks. There's a reason why true crime is such a popular genre. Um, to rate, review, and subscribe. (laughs) Uh, But this is a really interesting uh, kind of example of what was going on during a period where all of a sudden a bunch of people had access to mass media in a way that they didn't and that the public's tastes were really developing in this period. So I think that's really everything we want to say about this case. Uh, I think the last thing we'll tell you all is that if you're curious to find out more about this show or anything else that we're working on, uh, this podcast does have a fantastically designed webpage that I had nothing to do with making uh, associated with it. So check out criminalrecordspodcast.com. You can find out more about this episode, all of our other episodes, who we are, what we do, and all the crazy crimes that we love to talk about. Uh, if you go check, uh, go check it out. Yep, criminalrecordspodcast.com. And uh, that's all, I think. Next week, or next time, excuse me, uh, we will be taking a look at a fantastic ancient Chinese murder case that I'm really looking forward to talking with you all about. Uh, Until that time, uh, stay safe, don't get anything chopped off that you can't live without, and we'll see you next time.